This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel. Here in the studio, we have Jeremiah Jacques. Hi there. And Joshua Taylor. Hello. From a remote office in Montana, we have Andrew Miller. Hello. And from our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. Well, we were only away for about a week, but a lot can happen in a week in this world. And this is apparently especially true in Britain, which just last month lost a prime minister and a queen. And this week it lost another prime minister. For this story, we'll go to Richard Palmer. That's right. Uh, Yesterday, the British Prime Minister Liz Truss announced that she would be stepping down as leader of the Conservative Party and stepping down as Prime Minister once her replacement was selected. So this was after about 44 days in office. I guess she'll clock up just a few more days on that before she goes. Uh, But definitely by quite a long way, the shortest serving Prime Minister in British history. I think George Canning died in 119 days into the job in 1827. He was the previous record holder, a record that stood quite a long time. Uh, So definitely a real sense uh, of chaos, of uncertainty. And um, yeah, this is this 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 is this is Italian politics on steroids. But here in the UK, where we're used to things being generally a little more stable. Did you see the uh, Economist cover, Welcome to Brittany? Oh, yes, I did. Um, there was, was it the Daily Star had uh, Liz Truss lettuce. Who, who would last longer, the Liz, the, their lettuce or Liz Truss and, and the lettuce one? <laughs> yeah, so uh, tell us what brought her down so quickly. So I think there are two different answers depending on who you ask. One is the wrong policies. The other is, broadly speaking, the right policies, but pursued incompetently. And so because of, because of this, pretty much both wings or you know, the left and right within the Conservative Party agreed that she had to go. Even people that agreed with her general policy direction came to believe that she just lacked the basic competence uh, to run the country. So you had uh, it all really began with her her this is the so-called mini budget where she came out and announced her economic plans. And we talked about this at the time. We talked about how it was probably the first time you had anything resembling a right wing budget in Britain since since Margaret Thatcher. Uh, but you know, what she did was you try and cut taxes to shrink the size of the state without cutting spending. Which. If you're going to do that, you have to borrow money. And I think what happened in Britain is a it it's a powerful vindication of what the Trumpet's been saying about debt since the early 90s. You know, I remember reading for years Trumpet articles talking about coming back to this proverb, you know, the borrower servant to the lender. If you as a country are going to borrow huge amounts of money, uh, you're not in control of your country anymore. And you know, wow, have we seen this in Britain over the last couple of weeks. Liz Truss's decision to cut taxes without cutting spending, maybe it was the right decision, maybe it was the wrong. 
it didn't matter because investors disagreed with her and they ended up running the country. You know, she had to do a complete U-turn uh, because Britain very quickly found itself in a pensions crisis. Pension funds were caught out by the rapid rise in um, the interest that the government had to pay on their debt. You know, the pen pension funds had uh, invested in this kind of investment vehicle that helps provide returns for pensions when interest rates are low, but require them to put up more cash when interest rates rise. So there were there were pension funds on the brink of collapsing. The Bank of England had to step in and, you know, she she basically reversed course on everything that she stood for. She fired her chancellor. She brought in someone from pretty much the extreme left of the Conservative Party to be the chancellor. There are people even now kind of still saying, well, whoever's next in prime minister, they basically need to let Jeremy Hunt, the new chancellor, run the country. Uh, otherwise, the financial markets just won't stand for it. I mean, that remains to be seen, but it, it is it is really remarkable to see, you know, it is places like the IMF and it is their pronouncements and it is the belief of investors at large investment houses that are run that is running the country now. And a big reason for that is this massive debt that, that Britain has had built up in response to the financial crisis, in response to or the, you know, it, the, the, the massive overreaction to covid uh, and the economic damage that that caused. It's uh, it's a country being run by creditors. I want to just read a uh, quote to you that uh, Axios quoted um, Jason DeSena Trenert, chairman and CEO of Strategis, a research firm. He said this, the bottom line, the nearly 14 years of financial repression that allowed politicians to escape the economic consequences of their actions without fear of retribution from the frontier justice of free markets appears to be ending. The bill has come due. Uh, the The headline here is "World's Free Lunch is Over." This This is uh, essentially showing that uh, how how painful it can be to uh, to fall prey to the uh, high debt and the the consequences of high debt in in countries. Yeah, and I th this was kind of the angle I took uh, at the start of this crisis unfolding, where I just talked about how we're having this pound crisis that's a warning for everybody that's in debt, where, yeah, governments have been, for, for Britain especially, I think we've been doing this worse than just about any other country in the world, where the Bank of England was directly printing money and buying government debt. In the United States, that was a little more... Um, there was another step in the process. They were printing, the Fed was printing money and buying it off people that had bought it off the government. Uh, so just a little bit further removed. But yeah, it's, you've had this situation where people have, gen, people have now had 15 years to get used to the idea that there is free money for anything that they want. And you know, if it is a good thing, it is something the government must make happen. There is no accounting. There is no, you know, if you're, if, and if, if you're in a family and you want a new car, you don't just look at the positives of having a new car. You have to judge, well, can can we afford a new car? Uh, what is this going to do to my monthly budget? What is this going to do? Is it going to be more fuel efficient than what I've got at the moment or less? And you know, will I need this money for something else over the, over the next few years? And, and we've just ignored completely that side of the discussion because in large part because central banks have been printing money and interest rates have been low and there's just been this idea that you can borrow money for free. And I think Liz Truss's kind of economic plan took for granted that at least that would keep going for another couple of years. 
And if you're being charitable, then maybe she would have had a general election, got a tried to get a, a popular mandate behind her and then gone on to cut spending. Uh, but she just kind of assumed that this that this 15 year band of free money would would continue. And perhaps part of the reason it didn't was because of an ideological disagreement between the bankers and, and the people that run the Bank of England and this trust. Uh, but again, the borrower servant to the lender. Once you're starting to get into debt, you're handing over control of your country. So, uh, as you said, this this leaves uh, the conservative party and the country in uh, a bit of a pickle. Uh, they're trying to scramble to replace her as quickly as possible. Uh, give us a brief idea of what we might expect in the time ahead and just what this says for Britain, maybe longer term. Yeah, the last elections, you know, I think there was a couple of month process. It took over the summer to get a new prime minister. They want this done in a week. You know, there's they there's a like I said, there's a real sense of crisis. There's the sense of the government, but you know, there's the government finance crisis, say, but just personal crisis. You know, inflation hit over ten percent. We got that news just over over the last little bit. Uh, and there's a there's the cost of living crisis. There's all of these things that need to be addressed. So there's a very rapid replacement process. So what they've come up with is wannabe contenders have until Monday to get 100 nominations from conservative MPs. And given that there are a bit over 300, 350 you know, or so MPs, there could be up to three finalists, uh, people who get more than 100. I think some MPs are kind of hoping that only one person will crush, uh, cross that threshold and will have a new leader very quickly. Uh, even if you get more than one, well, then they'll go to a, a vote with the rank and file conservative party members you know the hundreds hundreds of thousands of conservative party members up and down the country they will choose and right now the leading candidate is rishi sunak you know the the runner-up last time round mm -hmm. that's not really a surprise he did say that liz truss's economic policy would be unaffordable that financial markets wouldn't stand for it uh so he kind of has this uh he's, he's, he's been proven right and so that gives him a certain amount of credibility. The number two uh, individual, though, in terms of seats, is none other than former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And if he makes it over the 100 votes hurdle, it seems like he would be the clear favorite among Conservative Party MPs. So the idea that this time next week Boris Johnson will be back as British Prime Minister is not far-fetched. This is not some kind of humorous exercise in... Um, what is technically possible. In fact, it may be the most likely outcome that we have this kind of chaotic summer and we end up exactly back where where we started. The other person that's got nominations so far is Penny Mordaunt. She did pretty well in, in the votes last time around. And she's kind of uh, from left and she's pretty far left when it comes to things you know, like homosexual issues and LGBT, right wing on other issues. But she she has a, a, a base of support as well. Wouldn't it be something with uh, we're just a short way away from uh, elections in Israel. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is making a big push there. We've been talking about uh, quite a lot about the prophecy that uh, Donald Trump will be back in office in the United States <laughs> to see Boris Johnson uh, coming back in Britain. Uh, we'll see what what happens. But uh, it is remarkable that these former washed up politicians that uh, that uh, that had their enemies and that wanted them removed uh are making such a 
strong comeback. Yeah, it's, I mean, we had this article on the front cover of our September issue, Britain and Judah's government fall, America, America next from editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry. And it was about these three countries uh, and it was about the Bible prophecies that tie these three countries together, that there's that these three countries are, are all descended from ancient Israel. God is treating them all in, in pretty similar ways in that uh, they received abundant blessings. They didn't use those blessings to glorify God. Instead, they just got more and more into sin. They're suffering the, you know, the inevitable consequences of their own actions. We're seeing that in Britain, where it's our own economic actions, our own massive borrowing, our own failed family and social policies that have led us to this circumstance where nobody can find a strong leader. Uh, but then also God is correcting these nations, adding curses to bring them to repentance. And this article you know, brings out, well, the Bible also prophesies that you'll have a resurgence in these countries where they'll both, uh, they'll all have, or it, certainly for Israel, certainly for the, for the United States, as Mr. Flurry covers in this article, it, it, the implication is that it would be there for Britain as well, uh, that God has a bit of a turnaround in these nations in the short term to allow his work to explain why they're having these curses, what is, what is going on. And so, you know, this whole article is about these three being tied together. And yeah, by next week, we could have Boris Johnson back in the UK. Israel's heading for an election where you could very, very soon have Benjamin Netanyahu back. Uh, and then we've talked for a long time about Donald Trump coming back. You could, you could have all three of the same leaders that we had uh, just pretty recently back, back in office. We will keep our eyes on this. A very interesting uh, development in Britain and uh, and the relationship that it has with these other Israelite countries, as we uh, often talk about. Uh, we'll, we will see how this all unfolds. Uh, Mr. Palmer wrote an article this week, Britain to get another new prime minister. We'll link to that as well as that article from Gerald Flurry, Britain's and Judah's governments fall, America next. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Palmer. China's Xi Jinping opened the Chinese Communist Party Summit, and he spelled out his vision for China over the next five years, including his own remaining in power. For this, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, a turbulent age is approaching for China and for the world, and Chinese Supreme Leader Xi Jinping is preparing himself and his nation to face it head on. This was on Sunday that he gave a, I think, what was a deeply significant two-hour-long speech delivered in the Great Hall of the People there in Beijing. Uh, this was, as you said, the kickoff for China's most significant political event. It's twice per decade Communist Party Congress. So this was the uh, the 20th iteration of the Communist Party Congress. And Chairman Xi struck a tone in this opening speech that I think can only be called defiant. He ordered members of the Chinese Communist Party or the CCP to face challenges with what he called a, quote, indomitable fighting spirit, because the Chinese must never be deterred by intimidation or cowled by pressure. She uh, also said the party needs to seize every opportunity at a time when, quote, a significant shift is taking place in the international balance of power. So this shift, that's code for the decline of the United States. And really, the, the U.S. was sort of hovering around throughout this speech, even though he didn't call it by name. America was always there as enemy number one and as the power that these opportunities need to be seized from. She also called for CCP members to guide China's young people. He emphasized youth a great deal. 
and told the CCP elite to guide them so that they, you know, embrace the party, so that they study hard, so that they stay physically fit, and uh, so that they eventually make more babies for the motherland. China's demographics are terminal now, so that's a, a plea that we're hearing more and more. Um, another big talking point was Hong Kong and Taiwan. She praised himself for crushing Hong Kong's democratic opposition over the last couple of years and just ending all of its freedoms. He praised the fact that the island is now run entirely by Communist Party loyalists, and he connected that to Taiwan, saying the kind of situation now in Hong Kong will inevitably become reality in Taiwan. And he stressed that China is willing to use force to incorporate Taiwan into China. His, his quote about that was, we will continue to strive for peaceful reunification, but we will never promise to renounce the use of force, and we reserve the option of taking all measures necessary. End quote. So those are just a couple of takeaways from this very significant speech. The, the speech we know sets the tone for not just the seven days of this Congress, but really for the next five years of Chinese Communist Party's policy. So I think from it, we can just expect a, a much more defiant, more ambitious, and more confrontational China in the months and years ahead. And there was also indication that he would be the one ruling over this 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 next five years and this age of, of China that he was spelling out. That's right. Yes, this was not directly stated, but we got a lot of insight into Xi Jinping's you know, just his unwavering confidence and his plans about the future. Part of this came in the form of his discussions about his zero COVID policy. This has been just a disastrous policy that is still locking down tens of millions of Chinese each month. It's wildly unpopular. It's causing major economic disruption. But rather than acknowledge the economic toll of that policy, and, you know, maybe trying to frame it as saying, yes, there have been downsides, but those are sacrifices for the greater good. Instead of any of that, Xi Jinping insisted that zero COVID has made, quote, tremendously encouraging achievements in economic development. So just a stunning lie, a lie that everyone there knows is a lie. The Chinese know that unemployment is soaring, the housing market is imploding, you know, the, the economy is suffering, suffering so much that China decided not to even release its economic data to the world this year. But Xi Jinping didn't mention any of that. He didn't offer any kind of reassurance or any acknowledgement of the, you know, the, the costs of his policies because his power is consolidated. He has removed everyone from the CCP's inner circles but loyalists and yes-men. He has built a cult of personality that I think makes Mao Zedong look inclusive. <laughs> and now he's not about to show any kind of weakness when he has a third term to secure. So instead, he's showing only resolve and utter disregard for anyone who doesn't bow down to him. So we won't officially know until Sunday when the Congress ends if Xi Jinping has officially secured his third term. But his arrogant, you know, just very defiant tone throughout this speech shows that this outcome has already been decided. Xi Jinping has seized an unprecedented third term, and all indications are that he'll be emperor for life. We've been talking about this uh, new strongman age that has been developing for some time. You see it in Russia, you see it in China, and and also in several European nations. Uh, this is really prophetically significant. It is, yes. And uh, we've got an article in our January 2018 issue of the Philadelphia Trumpet. It's by the Trumpet's executive editor, Mr. Stephen Fleury. And it's it's all about the world really heading back into 
a time of strongman rule. One part of this says, For nearly two centuries, the dominant geopolitical trend in the world was the spread of democratic free societies. The British Empire led the way in the 19th century. The U.S. did it during the 20th. But this century will be totally different. The dominant trend thus far has been the rise of authoritarian strongmen. Now we are seeing that the democratic experiment has failed and we are falling back into a dark age. Um, and actually, this same edition of the Trumpet features an article all about Xi Jinping, just showing that he's becoming one of the world's most powerful and dangerous men. And the party Congress that's underway in China right now shows that that trend has only accelerated since those articles were written. Well, we will link to that. And you are also uh, writing an article about this uh, um, the Communist Party Summit. Uh, you can watch for uh, Mr. Jacques' article that should be on the website next week. Uh, thank you very much for that, Mr. Jacques. Elections in America are in two and a half weeks, and the Biden administration is doing everything it can to essentially buy votes for Democrats. For this story, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yes, the United States election season is in full swing with midterm elections coming up in just a few weeks. Uh, many Democrats are growing increasingly worried as um even some of the, the bigger polling companies are predicting a 75% chance that Republicans will take back the House of Representatives. And so uh, in order to try to prevent that from happening, they're, they're promising free stuff left and right. The Biden administration has already announced that up to 8 million uh, people with student loan debt won't even have to apply for student loan forgiveness. Those 8 million people will just have 10 to 20,000 of their student loan debt automatically processed and forgiven by the government. Uh, Biden's also, he's not so desperate that he is willing to increase U.S. oil production, but he is promising to uh, release much more of our strategic oil reserves that we save for emergencies. Uh, that will, uh, in order to try to at least bring gas price down temporarily before the election, uh, he, the Democrats believe, and, and maybe might be slightly wrong with this, but they believe that abortion is uh, going to be a hot button issue with this case. So uh, he's really promising, really promising the American people that if they elect Democrats, that he'll he'll actually pass legislation, congressional legislation, legalizing abortion. Um, in order to try to uh, undo the Roe v. Wade overturn from last summer. Uh, and finally, uh, in one uh, uh, particularly political uh, public stunt, uh, Biden has officially pardoned uh, anyone uh, caught with uh, possessing marijuana. Now, that's one of those stunts that doesn't actually really change anything because uh, – in the United States, marijuana possession is a federal crime, but it's legal in most states, or at least over half the states. But since the federal government hasn't been enforcing those laws for a while, uh, those laws will still be, it's still illegal if it's illegal in the state you're in, it's still legal if you're legal in the state you're in. But by giving a federal pardon on the federal level, he definitely is telegraphing to uh, telegraphing to people that he's uh, very pro a pro-marijuana from across the nation. But I think between these four things, the the pardoning, the marijuana possession, the pushing for legal abortion, 
subsidizing the gas by releasing stuff from the emergency reserves and forgiving uh, automatically eight million a student loan debt. These are these are things that he's definitely doing to try to increase his popularity with his base uh, with just the, with just days to go till the election starts. You know, it it strikes me in looking at these moves just how increasingly polarized the United States is becoming because, uh, as you mentioned with the abortion issue, uh, but I think it's true of all of these things, uh, if these are attempts to appeal to a certain segment of voters, it really is uh, revealing just how radical this administration is. Uh, I think he's kind of showing himself to be far more radical than um, a lot of people assumed he would be. I think many people who voted for Joe Biden kind of were thinking of him as as the more moderate uh, Democrat presidential choice uh, over some of uh, some of his rivals. And and yet he really is is extremely radical and there would be a lot of Americans who would look at this and be absolutely repelled by these kinds of uh, policy pronouncements. Uh, so you you really have this uh, this division and polarization in the American electorate like you've never seen before. Yeah, that is absolutely correct. And it'll make the, the midterms really interesting because it will tell that the, this election is going to tell us a lot about America. Because in many ways, the, the election results, uh, assuming they're not uh, excessively rigged, will be uh, a bit of a referendum on a lot of these topics we've been discussing to see just how many Americans support this and how many Americans don't. Because uh, for, every, for every American who's really convinced that uh, they want to vote for Biden now because of his marijuana policies or because of his abortion policies, there's probably at least one other American who's really angry that yeah. uh, Biden would say something like this and are convinced that they'll vote for the other candidate. But that is a, a good point about just how polarized it is because uh, uh, even Barack Obama, I was watching a clip from him uh, this week where he was uh, doing the same thing he did last election where he's basically warning a lot of the, the, the new younger generation of Democrats to not basically don't sound too radical if you want to win elections. I think he was particularly talking about uh, cancel culture where he said just this whole conflict where uh these Democrats, they're, they're like just completely uh, shutting down, no compromise, anyone who would say anything that had uh, against what their their very stringent beliefs on gender equality and racial equality and stuff like that. Basically saying that um, if you come down too strong on something like that, you're going to alienate uh, potential Democratic voters uh, and have a backlash against the current administration. And that's really... That's really kind of an interesting trend we've been watching for a while is because um, oh, in his book, uh, America Under Attack, or, or maybe it's actually in Great Again, I think. But, uh, in Great Again, our, our, our editor-chief, Mr. Uh, 
Gerald Flurry points out that he said the radical left really kind of hijacked the Democratic Party in the 1970s. And in the 1970s, you saw a lot more of the the Maoist communist slogans in politics like you see today. Uh, and then there was actually a, a man who was very influential on Barack Obama, Saul Alinsky, who came on the scenes uh, about that time telling people, telling radical Democrats that he said he said a successful radical doesn't overly flaunt their radicalism. Uh, they, they don't use hippie slogans. They take a shower. They cut their hair. They put on a business suit. Uh, they talk moderately. And then you infiltrate the system from within. And Barack Obama is probably the poster child for that movement yeah. of uh, that's why. That's why in America Under Attack, Mr. Flurry compares him to an Antiochus Epiphanes is that he sounds like something he's not. He is just as radical as the Bernie Sanders and the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes of the world. Uh, but he comes across as, <laughs> if you watch him, he definitely sounds like more of an elder statesman than uh, than any of the, the squad in Congress, which is why he was so popular <laughs> when he was elected and more popular than uh more, more people voted for Obama than voted for Biden, uh, per, or a bigger share of Americans voted for Obama than voted for Biden anyway. I guess the population's bigger now, and the election turnout was, uh, and the election turnout was greater as well. But, uh, but just really making the point that he's, the Democrats though they they don't seem to be they don't seem to be taking his advice. They're not they're not looking for converts. Right. They're not looking to infiltrate the system from within they are just really pushing for open conflict and that is making that polarization you were talking about just so much worse well we would uh, encourage you to uh, get that book from gerald flurry america under attack that explains the spiritual dimension behind what is happening here and this increasingly open radicalization of uh, a huge portion of the uh, american electorate and uh, the, the way that the government is exploiting that. We do uh, appreciate that very much, Mr. Miller. On now to the war in Ukraine, an interesting development there. Russia is beginning to use Iranian military tech. To learn about this, we'll turn to Joshua Taylor. So on Tuesday, Iran promised to supply Russia with more drones and surface-to-surface uh, surface missiles. Now, we've been hearing about Iran supplying Russia with drones for a few months now, but it's been mostly speculation and also uh, just reports coming from the U.S. It's not been confirmed by any uh, by Russia or by Iran, but now Iran is openly promising these weapons to Russia, and in particular, Russia is interested in the Fatah and uh, Zulfgar missiles. These are short-range road-mobile ballistic missiles that are very, very accurate. They're some of Iran's most advanced uh, short-range missiles, and they're accurate up to 435 miles. And the drones that Iran is giving to Russia or selling to uh, Russia are its kamikaze-style drones. So they have a small explosive payload that uh, detonates upon impact. Uh, and over the last few weeks, uh, Ukraine has even reported Russia's use of these drones now in recent attacks. Uh, the U.S. State Department determined that Iranian drones were used on a Monday morning attack on Kiev just this Monday during rush hour. And in addition to selling Russia this equipment, they're also helping them to use it. They're teaching them how to use it and are even on the ground right now uh, directing its use. 
Again, U.S. State Department spokesman Ned Price said on Thursday that Iranian military personnel were on the ground in Crimea and assisted Russia in these attacks. So the question then becomes, well, why is Russia having to buy this uh, uh, equipment from Iran? You know, Russia is a fairly advanced military power and is fairly capable of producing its own uh, weapons and stuff like that. But uh, a European diplomat speculated that Russia has been struggling recently to produce and resupply its own weaponry, given the sanctions on its industrial sector and its economy. It is quite remarkable that they're uh, they're turning to Iran uh, for these weapons and the fact that Iran is uh, capable of producing uh, military technology that's of, uh, of a quality that Russia is interested in that. Absolutely. You know, up until recently, you could easily dismiss uh, Iran's military capabilities as, you know, backwater or, you know, second rate to nations like uh, the U.S. or Britain or Russia. And in many ways, that is the case. They, they don't have the same, they're not on the same level as the U.S. But in certain areas like their drone development and in their ballistic missile development, and very soon their uh, their nuclear weapons, uh, Iran's been really growing in its capabilities to the point where it's a leading contender in these uh, these versions or these pieces of equipment. Um, just recently, the military advisor to Iran's supreme leader said that currently 22 other nations aside from Russia were wanting to buy Iranian drones. And on this Wednesday, Iran's supreme leader Khamenei said that these drones represent Iran's pride. So Iran's military capabilities, again, they're not obviously on the level of the United States, but in very important areas, they are making great advancements to the point where they're becoming a leader in these technologies. So uh, it is kind of remarkable, I guess, you have Russia using Iranian technology in Ukraine uh, and Looking at this prophetically, maybe you can just explain why this would be of uh, interest, uh, prophetically speaking. So in a prophecy, in the Daniel 11 verse 40 prophecy that we talk about quite a bit on the show, it talks about the king of the south. And as Mr. Fleury has identified, that is Iran. And in that prophecy specifically talks about them having a pushy foreign policy and specifically pushing against the king of the north. And that's... Um, a united Europe, Europe under Germany, as Mr. Fleury has identified. So it's interesting that these uh, Russian uh, Russians, they're you know they're at war with Ukraine, which is a European country, but they're using Iranian military weapons. They are quite literally pushing at Europe using Iranian weapons, which is exactly what this prophecy describes. Now it's the Russians doing it with Iranian weapons, but. You know, we, this is something we expect to see is Iran's growing ability to strike at Europe or to push at Europe, both economically, militarily and so and diplomatically even as time goes on. Well, if you would like more information about that prophecy, you can look at our booklet, The King of the South. We will link to that in the show notes. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Taylor. You're listening to Trumpet Hour coming up. We'll have a bit more on the war in Ukraine as Vladimir Putin declares martial law in the regions that Moscow just annexed there. And more. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. 
We spoke last week about Russian President Vladimir Putin annexing four regions in Ukraine. This week, he declared martial law in these regions. To learn about this, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, this was on Wednesday that Putin declared martial law in these four Ukrainian regions, which he says are now part of Russia after the uh, the sham referendums that he staged there. So the, the Ukrainians, of course, do not acknowledge that these regions are Russian. They maintain that they're part of Ukraine's sovereign territory. And so they're fighting to oust the Russian invaders. And just like we're seeing in uh, other areas of this uh this war, the Ukrainians are pushing the Russians back. It's not happening quite as quickly here as it did in the Kharkiv region, but the Ukrainian counteroffensive is making progress. And that's why Putin is now declaring martial law. This uh, martial law gives Russian authorities just sweeping powers to impose curfews, to restrict any kind of travel, to take over residences of all kinds. Um, under these circumstances, the military can also legally take any civilian resources that it needs to. So this, you know, it does show us that I think just a, a volatile new phase of the war is underway. It started with the mobilization that was announced last month. And now we see that this mobilization is not just about personnel. It's also about mobilizing state resources. The Russian system really can't mobilize hundreds of thousands of additional troops without taking overt control of state resources to support those men. So this is a, it's a notable move and it shows, I think some worry on Putin's part, but it also shows that his resolve is undiminished. So we, we talked in the, uh, we, we just talked to Josh Taylor about the, uh, the drones that Russia is procuring from Iran, I guess, uh, looking at that from Russia's perspective, uh, what what is your take on why they would be uh, seeking these weapons from Iran? Yeah, well, I think it does show that Russia is running out of, uh, in particular, the precision guided missiles that it needs to take out those uh, howitzers that Ukraine is using. Russia didn't expect the war to go on this long, so it has used up huge numbers of its guided missiles and it may be running out. Um, especially because of sanctions that complicate the, you know, the supply chain and the manufacture of, of new ones. But this drone deal, I think the significance of it for Russia is that it shows that Putin still has friends. It shows that ties with Iran remain strong. And even if nations like China are refraining from arming Russia, Iran is still willing to give weaponry to support Putin's war. So it's just one more sign that Russia is not as isolated as the West had hoped and that this war could still drag on for a long time. Can you put this in uh, prophetic context for us, Jeremiah? Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, Trumpet editor in chief, Gerald Flurry, he's been warning for many years about the threat posed by Vladimir Putin, um, starting actually all the way back in the early 2000s before many onlookers saw Putin as a real danger. And that's because Bible prophecy talks about a block of Eastern nations that will be formed in the modern era. The book of Revelation gives some details about that. So do the books of Daniel and Joel. And then uh, Mr. Flurry has also called a lot of attention to Ezekiel 38 verse 2 to show that this Eastern alliance will be directed mainly by one Russian man. The passage there calls this man the Prince of Rosh, or you could say the Prince of Russia. And Mr. Flurry has identified Vladimir Putin as that man who 
will lead, you know, not just Russia, but a whole group of Asian nations along with it. In his booklet called The Prophesied Prince of Russia, Mr. Flurry goes through Ezekiel 38, and he ties it to those other passages and, and shows just how devastating this alliance that Putin will lead is going to be. So I think it's uh, just very important for us to, vig to vigilantly watch Putin as he continues Russia's war on Ukraine and really in all aspects of his dictatorial rule. All right. Well, we'll link to the prophesied Prince of Russia in the show notes. Thank you very much, Mr. Jacques. We spoke in the first half about China's aggressive vision for the future and its dominating ways. Well, judging by the deal Germany just made with China, it appears to be okay with this. For this story, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yes, we got news this week that the German Chancellor Olaf Schulz is overriding the objection of just about everybody in the German government, both his coalition partners, even people within his own party, and forging a much stronger relationship with China. So uh, he, China's uh, Costco, not to be confused with, um, you know, it's, it's, it's China's port operator. It's not the, the massive retail store that sells toilet paper in bags the size of a small house. Uh, <laughs> But uh, China's Costco is wanting to buy a 35% stake in the port of Hamburg. Hamburg is Europe's third largest port. It's Germany's largest port. You know, everyone's talking about controlling supply chains these days and, and supply chain security. Hamburg is absolutely crucial to Europe's supply chain security. And Olaf Schulz is signing away a huge chunk of that to China. And it's part of a, an acceleration of Germany's business ties to China. Uh, people have been comparing it to the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, that you, know, you had this Nord Stream 2 pipeline that really cemented economic relations between Germany and Russia. Well, we're seeing a Nord Stream 2 type pipeline kind of deal, but between Germany and China now, where they're signing over this port. And you know, this is just the beginning. Uh, so next month, the uh, he'll be visiting. He'll be making his first trip to China. He'll be taking a whole bunch of German businessmen with him, and they'll be signing a whole lot of deals. Uh, so Germany's lost out economically since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and on on several fronts, they're looking to replace that with a much tighter relationship with China. And some things that they maybe can no longer get from Russia, or maybe they can get those those resources from China instead. It's kind of jarring to uh, to be hearing about this really in the same week that we were hearing uh, what Mr. Jacques was talking about in the first half about uh, Xi Jinping's vision for China's future. And uh, this has been really one of the biggest geopolitical stories of the last several years, just how aggressive China has been in promoting uh, its own interest, creating these uh, economic ties with uh, several other nations, and then using that as leverage to uh, gain power and influence over them, uh, debt trap diplomacy, that type of thing. For Germany to see all of that and say, this is a country we want to do business with, says something about Germany, doesn't it? Yes, it says it says a lot about Germany. It says a lot about who runs Germany, even. Uh, you know, Germany's Green Party, they're a member of the coalition. Not doing business with evil regimes was a huge part of the platform on which they stood. Uh, and they're kicking up a big fuss. They don't agree with this at all. 
but they're still going forwards. And it reminds me of the comments that uh, Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry drew attention to kind of around this time last year when Angela Merkel was talking about Nord Stream and the deal that she did with Russia, where she kind of privately admitted, you know, yeah, it, was a, it wasn't a great deal, but I, I had no choice. And he really kind of zeroed in on that comment as it exposes who's in charge of Germany, it's these businesses. And you're seeing exactly the same thing that is in China. Most of the German government, even from Schultz's own party, don't agree with this. But it seems similar to Merkel. He feels like he's got no choice. And he's being pushed into this relationship by German businesses. And the connection that Mr. Flurry made uh, in that article was, you, know, you go back to World War II and, and there were, you know, Herbert W. Armstrong was saying, well, you're going to have uh, the Nazis go underground. There were then declassified intelligence documents saying that Nazi leaders went underground within German businesses. And now we're seeing these same businesses pushing Germany to do deals with evil regimes. And it's, uh, it's, it's maybe even more astonishing in some ways with China. I think Joshua Michel said an article on, over the last year or so on our website drawing attention to the fact that you've got, say, companies like Siemens or some of these companies that were explicitly involved in the Nazis with the Nazis. And they have kind of right in their mission statements, things along the lines of, you know, we've learned from our history, we're never going to do any of these kind of things ever again. And they're now doing deals with Chinese, the Chinese government to use Chinese laborers from concentration camps. You know, if anyone is going to keep their hand, you know, German businesses are not unique in doing this. You know, there are American businesses that are doing business shamefully with uh, you know, Chinese concentration camp labor and this kind of thing. But if anyone's going to, to kind of keep their hands squeaky clean, you would think it would be these businesses that say, hey, we've made huge mistakes in this area in the past. Uh, we've learned our lesson. We're going to stay a million miles away from that kind of thing in the future. But that's not the case. Uh, and so you're seeing history repeat itself and, and nobody's really paying attention to that despite, I mean, like we've both talked about, they'll talk, they'll talk to the cows come home about slavery in the past, but not talk about the slavery that's going on right now. Uh, so yeah, you see this very concerning relationship driven by German businesses, once again, the same dynamic playing out with China. Now, give us a, uh, a brief overview here of the relationship between Germany and China, this is something that uh, our editor-in-chief has drawn attention to, its role in prophecy, just how significant this is. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, this is a, a, for me, it's one of my favorite examples of just watching Bible prophecy fulfilled before your eyes, that Isaiah chapter 23 talks about a, a mart of nations, this kind of trading block that talks about all these merchants and people traveling over the seas. And it talks about it being, um, you know, a trading block between Tyre, uh, which you know, refers to basically the commercial center of the power that we see rising in Europe. And then it talks about Kitty and this power that uh, you can look into who that is in Bible prophecy, and that's referring to China. And it was around 2010 that, that Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry started talking about uh, you know, this prophecy and that you've got a prophecy of this strong commercial relationship between uh, Europe and China. And it was just in the years after he started talking about that, that you then had German Chancellor Angela Merkel making more trips to China than to any other overseas country outside of Europe. And you had people talking about a special relationship between Germany and China. You know, you, you had Xi Jinping treating Merkel in a way that he didn't treat any other foreign leader, with the exception of maybe someone like Vladimir Putin. You're taking her back to his hometown and just having this 
publicly telegraphing this much closer relationship. So we've seen this prophecy fulfilled and now we're seeing it confirmed, you know, this is not just a Merkel thing. Uh, the next government is continuing this policy of cozying up to China because just like the relationship with Russia, fundamentally, this is a, a relationship between countries that want a new world order that's not dominated by the United States. And so they're working together commercially at the moment uh, to build a new type of system. So I covered some of this relationship and just even some of the you know, bringing it back to the port of Hamburg some of these different ports and rail terminuses and very physical connections that are being built between these countries in an article uh, titled All Roads Lead to Beijing in 2016. But that will take you through some of these some of these scriptures, uh, where we get some of these biblical identities from, but then just how this is shaping your world in a very real sense. Excellent. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Palmer. The United Nations has essentially made a hobby of criticizing and censuring the Jewish state of Israel. This week it put in some practice on that hobby. For this, we'll go back to Josh Taylor. I think that this is the UN's favorite pastime, as you said. Uh, the UN's Commission of Inquiry, which was created specifically to investigate rights abuses in Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza Strip, released its second report on Thursday. The report accused Israel, among other things, of violating international law, implementing discriminatory policies against Arab citizens, stealing natural resources, and for the cherry on top, waging gender-based violence against Palestinian women. Uh, the Commission of Inquiry, Chris Sadati, said, The actions of Israeli governments reviewed in our report constitute an illegal occupation and annexation regime that must be addressed. And the report requested that the International Court of Justice issue an advisory opinion declaring that the Israeli occupation of territory past the pre-1976 lines be illegal. Now, such an adv advisory opinion from the uh, International Court of Justice would be non-binding, so it wouldn't carry any legal weight, so to speak. It couldn't be actioned upon by uh, anybody, but it would give Israel's enemies uh, more legitimacy and give them more ammunition to th uh, throw at the Israeli state. As you said, this is really the UN's favorite pastime, just to kind of give a bit of perspective on this. In 2021, the, uh, the UN um, condemned Israel 14 times. Now, that is, accounts for 74% of the UN General Assembly's condemnations. Nations like Iran and North Korea only received one each that year. And China's uh, uh, genocide of the Uyghurs didn't receive a single condemnation. So that just kind of gives you an idea of how much the UN is focused on attacking Israel, which doesn't really make any logical sense considering Israel's the only true democracy in the Middle East. It's by far the most faithful ally of the US and other Western nations and the most religiously free in the, in the Middle East, among other things. It's the most liberal and Western country, yet the West and the UN in general loves throwing attacks their way all the time. So you might ask, well, why this? what's the real reason for this kind of demonization of Israel? It's really unjustified. And you have to look back throughout all of history of the, of the Jewish people, which throughout their history, they've always received this kind of hatred. They've always been attacked in this way. Today, we give it a, na a name. We call it anti-Semitism, but it's just a modern term for what has been going on throughout history. And the reason for this hatred, not just today, but throughout all history, is that the Jewish people have a special history with God. Not only that, God gave them the and made them the caretakers of the Old Testament. And this special history puts them at the in the crosshairs, dead center of the adversary of God, which is Satan the devil. 
because Satan absolutely hates anything to do with God. He hates God's plan. He hates God's people. He hates even the nation that has that right now bears the name of Israel. And he specifically also hates the, the city that God has chosen, which is Jerusalem. So just to put this into prophetic context, and the reason why we're bringing this up is that this international hatred, it foreshadows what we're going to see coming up in Bible prophecy here, and specifically around the city of Jerusalem in Israel. Part of the area identified in this report as being, quote, illegally occupied is East Jerusalem. And based on prophecies uh, such as the one in Zechariah 14, verses 1 to 2, Mr. Gerald Flory has shown that that half of the city, Eastern Jerusalem, is going to be retaken by the Palestinians and not in a diplomatic way. It's going to fall violently. And that's going to be the trigger that leads to the end time, that leads to the return of Jesus Christ. Mr. Flory writes in his book, Jerusalem and Prophecy, the battle, this battle will trigger events that lead to a nuclear World War III. This will be the crowning result of man's best efforts to bring the world peace. Thankfully, Jesus Christ will intervene just before all life has been exterminated. And if our readers would like and listeners would like to know more, there's an article that we have on the website by Christopher Eames entitled, United Nations Again Finds Israel the Worst Country in the World, and also Mr. Gerald Fleury's book, Jerusalem in Prophecy. All right. Thank you very much. Americans are hurting from inflation and recession, and economists say things are certain to get worse. For our final story today, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yes, many conservatives are hopeful that if Republicans do do well in the midterms this year, that there may be some economic relief, at least lower fuel prices, uh, if you uh, start cutting some of the the red tape on drilling and things like that. But um, even if those fuel prices in some other areas do come down, there's definitely reason to believe that the economy is going to get much, much worse before it gets better. Bloomberg, Bloomberg economists now predict a 100% chance of recession within the year. Uh, and now me and many others actually kind of define a recession as two quarters of negative growth, uh, which means by that metric, we're already in a recession. So that right. makes it a very safe prediction right. to say a 100% chance when you're already in it. Basically, I think you could you could, uh, you could rewrite that headline to say Bloomberg economists predict 100% chance of government admitting we're in a recession within a year. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, the, the, the prediction shows that the, the, the recession is going to last for a while and the inflation rate is also likely to remain high. The, the latest numbers show inflation at 8.2%, which is, it was 8.3 the month before. So basically holding steady as gas prices come down a little bit and everything else goes up. But more and more economists are admitting that while they were initially hopeful that you could get it back down to normal inflation by 2024, uh, there's now a pretty good chance that it could actually be several years, even if inflation starts coming down, it could actually be several years before you get all the way back down to the 2% that the Fed tries to keep it at. Uh, and then the mortgage rates are just going <laughs> are just going crazy. They're already at 7% uh, when they were 3% a year ago. Uh, they're predicted to hit 8% by the end of the year and, and maybe even up, get up to 11% by next year, which is going to make um, anyone, anyone who wants to buy a house or rent a house from someone who is – currently buying it, uh, those prices are just going to go up well, very rarely high when you're, you're spending 
uh, 11% of a property's value uh, just in uh, just an in interest. And so some uh, some definite signs that the <laughs> the economy is definitely going to get going to get quite a bit worse before it gets better. Uh, and as the national debt gets bigger, just as it's eventually collapse in on itself. So now would be a great time to read our book, How to Solve Your your money troubles uh, just to make sure that your own personal finances are uh, storm-proofed sooner rather than later. Uh, and also take a look at our book, He Was Right, that goes through uh, uh, just the prophecies on the financial collapse uh, of America that the Bible talks about. All right, very good. We will link to that booklet and the chapter in He Was Right in the show notes for today's program. Thank you very much, Mr. Miller. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Joshua Taylor, and Richard Palmer. Thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. It is not doing the thing we like to do, but liking the thing we have to do that makes life blessed. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.